That's what history is. You're right. TikTok is awesome. Uh, I'm, it's I'm, incredible. I'm wholly impressed with it. And I know for a couple of years, I was probably very resistant. I had, you know, I had heard the, you know, it's China stealing our data. It's like, well, maybe they are. Someone's going to steal our data. I listen, my phone's not that secure. Somebody's going to steal it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know what the Chinese are going to do with my data. Uh, nothing worse than what the NSA is going to do with it. So I'm not so, too concerned. So I, I love what I love about TikTok. I'm going to compare it to Twitter because I'm not on Facebook anymore because Facebook's a dumpster fire. No, no so I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I think Twitter's the dumpster fire. Facebook is the post-apocalyptic hellscape. <laughs> because okay. there's, That's fair. there's That's fair. nothing there. There's nothing on Facebook. Except for like, you know, uh, our two like relatives who are removed a couple times. Sure. Arguing either pro-Trump or anti-Trump or pro-vax or anti-vax. It's, and that's all it is. Sure. It's a ghost town. Not quite that's a MySpace fair. ghost town, but, but it's a ghost town. Facebook is a, Facebook's a, you're right. It's a, it's a post-apocalyptic hell. I don't know. I haven't been on it in <laughs> several years. Maybe it's, maybe it is. I don't know. Because, but like what you're describing is exactly why I I left Facebook is like, there's nothing enjoyable on here for me anymore. Like when Facebook was first created and it was created for people in college, you know, so you had to have a college email and it was, it was like, it was just like this way for friends to make more friends and like, Hey, who wants to go out Friday night? And everybody be like, I do. Where do you want to go? And like, you'd have this whole, like, yeah almost like live streaming session on how are we going to plan our weekend or, Hey, here's what I did last weekend. We, we went on this trip and we went camping and here's all the photos, you know, like it was all this fun stuff. And now it's just like, well, here's a meme or a GIF I saw and it's politically based and it, you know, and let's argue yeah. about it. Or if you argue with me, I'll block you. Like, I, I just don't know what the, val- the value in it any. Yeah. And and so 90% of the people who are friends with me on Facebook are people that I know from my past. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where it kind of compares to Twitter. Twitter is, I think less than 10% of the people on Twitter I have actually met in person that I'm, I'm connected with. Uh, They're like a whole new group of friends. Now that's a dumpster fire because if you go down the wrong rabbit hole there, it is just, it's like the worst parts of town. Mm-hmm. but it's but at least interesting. It's interesting. And, and my friend, Antoine, a coworker of mine, he got me onto Twitter and he said, you will like Twitter because you will find out anything that's happening three days before the rest of the media gets to it, including Facebook. He goes, if you want to know the latest sports info, or you want to know the latest news or current events, get a Twitter account, follow those things. And anytime something happens, you'll know about it on Twitter first. And then your, your grandma will tell you about it a week later on Facebook. Like, yeah. And he's right. Like, like that's, that's exactly what happens is, is I'll find out something on Twitter about, you know, some actor passed away. And then my wife 
four days later, be like, did you hear? Like, yeah, I already processed this three days ago. Like I'm, I heard it, dealt with it and moved on. Well, that's, that's kind of one that's of the, what I uh, love about Twitter. It's one of the, uh, I guess, tropes of Twitter is that when somebody's name pops up in trending, who died everybody's now? first response yeah. is, uh, it's, um, oh, Denzel Washington. <gasps> oh, Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> he, he, they're not dead. They're not dead. Yeah. By the way, welcome to Dad Bod After Dark. Uh, after so we don't have dark. anything else prepared. That's we're, the, we're just gonna let all that roll. Where the yeah, beer's no, cold and the takes are old. Yes, yeah, so and tonight it's history. lemon water. Yeah. Um, got to keep your voice. Yeah, got to keep the. And keep by the, the way, as healthy. much as we're dumping on Facebook, go to Facebook.com/slash Dad Bod History. <laughs> we still love the followers. Yeah, like, you guys yeah are we great. love we love them. And, uh, you know, we're on Twitter and we are now on TikTok. We're actually putting we something. So the, but, but the validity of, of Twitter, it, and I still appreciate it for this, although I do find myself, especially when it was the election season, um, getting really drawn into those dark rabbit holes. And even if it was like stuff that you agreed with, you're like, man, I can't pull myself out of this. And I get that's social media. That's what they want to do. But TikTok, and maybe because it's newer, but it's so refreshing and the rabbit holes are there. Like you can't help yeah. it. Like you're just diving into stuff, but like it's almost edifying and it's almost edu- It is educational oh, in yeah. many I, respects. Far more than Twitter. Oh yeah. So the funny thing on Twitter is I, you know, we have, we have, I have a, my personal account. I have our dad bought history account, Twitter slash twitter.com slash dad bought history. Um, or at dad bought history. Um, two wildly different sets of oh, yeah. people because um, on Twitter, well, my personal account, I try to cast a wide net and I have several sets of, of kind of, so I have this whole kind of handful times 10 people that I follow that are just of the libertarian slant. Mm -hmm. And there's a good chunk of them that they, they don't use a real name, but they use a, they use a, an intentional and important name. And they use, they use an image like a classical liberal person and they post things and they're usually trolling, but it's, it's this interesting kind of troll. There's for some reason, I ended up following a bunch of Catholics on Twitter the Catholic <laughs> and Eastern Orthodox, and then tie that in with like the Protestants, especially like Lutherans and some of those rabbit holes. Again, they use, they use different names. They use either names that are tied to Catholicism and the Latin mass or like old Lutherans or whatever it is. And then those images, uh, it is, it is this deep dive hole into, mm-hmm. you know, the, the debate that I always see is, um, and I'm trying to think of the, the official name for it, but it is the um, the perpetual virginity of Mary and the veneration of Mary as being like the central issue because you have Catholics who hold it so dear. And then you have some Protestants, especially like Lutheran Protestants who are like, nope, mm-hmm. no, sorry. If you do that, it's heresy. And then the Catholics come back and say, well, if you don't, it's heresy. And yeah. by the end of, you know, three, the old uh, Godwin's law of everything devolves into Hitler. That actually never happens there. It all 
uh, in Catholic and Lutheran Twitter, it devolves not to Hitler, but to you are condemned to hell. Sure. Well, <laughs> and, the one thing that's more serious than Hitler is condemned to hell. Yeah. I mean, that that's the last step is. So and, and then and then, you know, I follow I follow plenty of people who are on the far left as well that are fascinating follows and, and I can have a genuine conversation with and uh, and people that I've that I followed and followed me back due to a disagreement in mm-hmm. which one of us ended up being corrected on a point. And that has been really good. But the engagement level compared to TikTok and I was very resistant to TikTok. compared to Twitter. You mean compared to oh TikTok compared to Twitter? Sorry, yep. um, it's 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 a, just a different thing. And, and what's so fascinating is that the content that's being created. So somebody will create a piece of original content, mm-hmm. right? And then people will watch it, like it, and comment on it. And then the creator will make a new piece of content replying to one of those comments. Right. And so you get this whole discourse happening, one in one respect via comment, and then in the other respect via a new video replying and expounding upon. And it's not always a disagreement. It, it, you know, sometimes it's, hey, I was wondering about this. And then somebody will reply, you know, and then you reply back to that. And it's just like this whole like, weird like engagement it, dynamic where it's it like encourages yeah the, the q a thing which mm-hmm. i've seen a couple of times it encourages questions and an actual discussion which is odd because it's in video form which gives it this extra step which is one of the i'd say one of the problems we've had is like how do we take that step into actually making this 30 second one minute three minute piece of content it shouldn't be that tough mm-hmm. but um, it, people do it and, and they do it really well. And and I think I'd like us to get it there. You know, there's a few of the people that, that I know we follow on there. Uh, mini minute man is a particular favorite of mine. Uh, yeah. Anthropology and archeology span does some pretty hilarious stuff. Um, I forget the name of the guy that you followed. Stakui. Or, Stakui. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of history stuff. And some of those are fascinating. And I know we, like and, and, you know, it's funny because he's shown green screens of his, his draft videos. I mean, it's, they come out, he does a lot of them, but he puts a ton of work into them and he's got a lot of stuff that he works on for a while. So it's not like, it's not as effortless as it, the final product looks, but the point is it like, it, it creates this discourse. And what's great about it is like that guy, Stakuyi is his account. I think his name is Steven. You know, I saw one of his videos and I replied to it and created my own little discussion. I'm like, here's why I think this is interesting. And, and it's one of those things where it really encourages you to say, yeah, go ahead and, and reply to other creators content, go ahead and stitch it or duet it and make your own spin on it. And it, it's just so revolutionary. You know, Instagram is trying with their reels, but the the reels are only 30 seconds long and they don't, they don't encourage the interactiveness of TikTok. It's right. just, it's something I've never seen before. And it's awesome. And I think it's, and, and, and it don't get us wrong. TikTok can be just as toxic as the rest of social oh. media. It, it gets bad. But I, like, I think that's probably something that turned me off in the first like week of really using TikTok recently yeah. is I'm scrolling through and I'm, and I'm legitimately having to like say, 
is is scrolling through this going to be bad for me? Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to find good content. I'm trying to find stuff that interests me, makes me laugh, makes me curious, makes me ask questions. And um, you know, it's all the the stuff that that doesn't. I think we know where we're going. You know, it, it's yeah. it's borderline um, inappropriate. I guess is just how we'll leave it. But mm-hmm. you know, at this point now, I scroll through, and that stuff doesn't pop up. It's learned you're not interested in this. Um, there's plenty of sports stuff that's come up, history stuff. There's a channel. I don't know if it's a channel. There's a creator. And all he does is pool ball racing. And so he takes a set of pool balls, you know, like cue ball and, and a, one through 15. And he puts them on a treadmill. Yeah. And then he just races them. He's like, oh, here comes the five. He's coming up. He's going to keep going. Oh, oh, the two's about to fall. Oh, no, he recovers. Yeah. He drops cups. It's awesome. It's like, and I just can't well, stop watching a, it. And you can put prop bets and like. <laughs> okay. Now that's interesting because the pool balls are all essentially the same, except for the color. Right. And he throws other things in there to mix up. There's another one, treadmill guys, where they do like cars, like matchbox cars. Oh, I've seen cars, those too. And he puts or, little team names or logos on yeah, the cars. And, it just, yeah. and I'm like, this is way more fascinating than it should be. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the kind of stuff that I've ended up following is just, it's all over the place, but it's things that interest me. And those things keep coming up. You know, when I, mm-hmm. when I log out or I come back later, it goes over to my for you page and, and I'm just going through new stuff that mm-hmm. does interest me. Cause it's, um, kind of got me, you know, Lord of the Rings, TikTok is, is fat. You know, these people are talking about things. In fact, new better, do better is one of the greatest Lord of the Rings accounts ever. I had to um, make a purchase because uh, what I have is in storage. So I had to buy this because I'm, I'm watching those videos. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know the stuff from the Silmarillion can from I, before. Can we talk about that? Because okay. I've, read, I've read the Silmarillion and it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. But... It I've is, never made it into like past the first few things different like the than the Hobbit and um and Lord of the Rings. It's it's like the it's venerable like beast. Genesis. It's, well, it's like yeah, like very good. It's like reading Genesis, but a thousand pages. It's like reading the venerable bead, um, history of England. You know, it, or the the uh, the. Gesta Danorum, you know, the history of the, the Norse people and, and, and Ragnar Lodbrok. Like, it's a chronicle. It's not yeah. a story. It's a chronicle of Middle Earth. And so it, there's parts of it you're just like, well, there's huge it, gaps because it's yeah. thousands of years. But then there's also like really intense moments within that. It's just very different. It, so the first part, which is uh, Anulindele, uh, the music of the Anur. Mm-hmm. And I'm no, I'm pronouncing it. And then, and then it goes to Valaquenta. And the first part of the Valaquenta is just a retelling of the first part. Mm-hmm. But here's the funny thing: is I also downloaded the audiobook because I wanted to listen to it in the car, and I knew that was a mistake because I need to see a lot of these names. Because guess what? They're not pronounced the way I'm pronouncing them. What's the other name for Eru? Iluvatar, right? Yeah, that's not how it's pronounced by the guy who reads it. It's Iluvatar. Gosh, see, like it's still Il- Ilu. But it's Vata. So one of these TikTok videos, I can't remember her name. She's really good too, but she Uh, said it's, it's, you know who I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. It's one of the Rob, Hannah Rob. Yeah, I think so. 
And she said, Gimli, son of Gloin, is actually Gimli, son of Glowin. And I'm like, what? And like, she did a whole three minute video. Well, like, How'd you no, pronounce it? Gloin? Gloin. Gloin. Gloin? Like one Gloin. syllable, Gloin. And she's like, no, it's Gloin. And she explained why. And I'm like, I had no idea. I, I've been pronouncing his name wrong for decades. So anyway, it, what are we talking about? Yeah, we can eat that. So talking about TikTok. So brilliant. Anyway, it's good. Yeah. It's just different. And I I can are see you why talking about TikTok or Silmarillion now. Both. Okay. They're both different. But they're both good and different. Silmarillion is different than Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so I really enjoyed it when I read it the first time, but I tried to start reading it again maybe a year ago. And I'm like, God, this is hard to get into. Like I forgot how hard it was to get into. But I know if I were to start it again, if I could get through that initial first part, it really becomes yeah. captivating. And so now I know, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, there there was a whole like the unfinished tales and the histories of Middle Earth that were released mm -hmm. probably 15, 20 years ago. And now they're releasing these other books like The Children of Hurin. You've mm. probably seen. There's another one, Baron and Luthien. Uh, the Fall of Gondolin, which are these like standalone tales that go into more detail that are written more you know, of a novel style, I suppose. And there's another one that's called The Nature of Middle-Earth that came out like a week ago. And it's about how Middle-Earth works, like the rules, like how the world works. And somebody in a TikTok video pointed out that in The Nature of Middle-Earth, it talks about the undying lands, time moves actually moves slower and and Tolkien laid out how time moves differently in the undying lands this person had mentioned uh that Frodo goes to the undying lands Sam stays lives another 60 years until Rose dies and then he goes to the undying lands well for Frodo for for Sam it would have been 60 years for Frodo it felt like one month in the undying lands hmm. which is just kind of this odd thing and so I you know, those are some other books I want to get. I want to read some of these other stories because I know these are what they're pulling from to make that new Amazon series yep. that comes out in a year. So speaking of the Amazon series, I finally watched the trailer for Wheel of Time. Yeah. Watch it with Brie and uh, looks good. I, you know, and I've been I've been tempering my enthusiasm for this show one. Cause I think it's taken about as long to make this show as it took Robert Jordan to posthumously finish the series. Like, like that's, well, he's not the one. Who's <laughs> well, I know. I mean, well, it was finished. I mean, Brandon Sanderson finished it, but like, I'm just really tempered myself. I'm like, okay, yeah, this show's coming out. And then I saw it and I'm like, well, and I was like, oh, well, that's Lan. Okay, there's Matt Coth and that's Perrin. Yeah. There's Rand or Randall Thor. Yeah. And and I'm like, oh, that must be a Gween. And, and obviously, um, Moraine was easy to, to yeah. pick out. And like when they showed Tarvalon, I'm like, okay, they, they've at least got, they've at least captured what my mind's eye was imagining as far as the settings go. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. Like, like I had this grand idea of what Tarvalon was, but I also had this grand, I, I had this, this idea of, of the two rivers and like these like kind of like thatched Adobe type houses. And there they were. And like, it was just like, Oh yeah, this is what my mind yeah. has been picturing for 
I think the decades. images of, of Tarvalon for me were not dis, they weren't disappointing, but it was not what I imagined. I imagined the tower was this massive tower, like unfathomably tall for, for that world. And the tower that they show is it's a tower, it's big, but it's nothing. It didn't seem to capture the size that I thought of. You know, it's but of funny. course, they did the same thing in in uh, Game of Thrones because the the wall in the north is supposed to be what seven miles high or something like mm-hmm. it's just and it's not because that's a ridiculous ridiculously high wall. So yeah, nobody could live on a yeah. wall that was seven miles high. Yeah, it's impossible. So um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's funny is the Ace and I because they're supposed to be ageless. And so I was looking at like, well, they're not ageless. And I'm like, I don't know how you'd make an ageless Ace I think you just kind of got to deal with them. Like, well, yeah, because we don't actually have ageless humans. We need to just right. go with what we got. And except I, for I'm Keanu sure, Reeves. Except for Keanu. And Paul Rudd. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage may have been reincarnated. We're not sure. Yeah. There's like those old timey photos of Nicolas Cage. But yeah, Paul. <laughs> so if they have male Ace Sedai, they need to get Paul Rudd and Keanu Reeves when when the Black Tower is built. Oh yeah, that's got that's got to be your Logan. Oh yeah, and your oh who is the who's the other false dragon? The one that was evil, Mazram Tame. Mazram Tame. That's yeah. So Mazram Tame. That'll be well, your they've Keanu. already cast Logan. So oh, have they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Keep in mind, a year ago. Like exactly a year ago, I gave the Wheel of Time to a seventh grader and he finished the series in February. That's a lot of reading. I gave That's... the series to a sixth grader last month and she's into The Dragon Reborn right now. It's a book four. Okay. No, three. Oh yeah, Shadow Rising. So four. she's, and it's just like, man, I didn't start reading those till college. You were the one that got me into it. Yeah. And, and Nick had gotten me into it and it took me two tries to get into eye of the world. Mm -hmm. When I finally got into it, uh, I tried it in high school, quit, got into it in college, my freshman year. And then I was reading one of my uh, freshman roommates, Jim, he, he had read most of it, but of course I didn't finish it until 2014 when the final book came out. So that took me 15 years I had to read when the final book came out. I had oh, to yeah. reread every oh, book yeah. so I could remember because it was, it had been so long and it was awesome. It was still great the second time through all 13 other books. Um, but the, what is it? Eye of the world, the great hunt and dragon reborn, reborn are quite possibly three of the best fantasy books of all time. Like they're, they're up there. Very good. Every and, and and Shadow Rising was good, and the other books are good, but there's definitely peaks and valleys after that. But those yeah. first three were incredible. Those three were were like probably my I think my first real foray into fantasy. I had read like uh oh the Dritzto Warden series before that. Oh yeah, uh, Salvatore, um, and those were good. Those I mean they were fun. Uh, but this was the first time I'd really dive, dive deep. Mm-hmm. When I finished that series, the last three books, I don't think they could have picked anyone better than Brandon Sanderson to finish it out. But those last mm-hmm. three books were 
like a powerhouse finish. Like Robert Jordan had laid this groundwork over so many books, maybe too many in the middle. Mm -hmm. But when you finally got those, those finishes and those threads being pulled together and yeah, it was, it was a heck of a payoff. I'd say it, it ranks up there with like end game as a, as a great, that's payoff. a great way to put it. Yeah. That's a great way to compare it is the wheel of time is just like the Marvel cinematic universe in that there's all these disparate threads. I mean, there's this obviously underlying theme and there's movies that aren't good. You know, I think winter's heart was a, not my favorite book. And I don't think it passed much time in world. It's like a week. Yeah. <laughs> so you could compare winter's heart to like Thor, the dark world. You know what I mean? Like there, Marvel had a couple misses in there, but overall yeah. the culmination was awesome. And the last books that, that Sanderson did to finish it off based on Jordan's outlines and notes was incredible. Like I, yeah. Like it was emotional for me to finish reading those. Oh, and I yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and what what I guess I kind of love about it is that I can hand it off to a sixth or seventh grader, and I don't have to worry about content as far as yeah there being great. an issue. It really there was nothing in there that I could find objectionable. Oh, well turned ankles. Uh, so I mean, I, I Rand know. had some very well turned <laughs> ankles. I mean, there were some sex scenes, but they were all like. It was like off-screen sex, you know, like, yeah. oh, and then they had sex. Yeah, it was, um, uh, <laughs> it was tastefully done. <laughs> Nothing like like Game of Thrones, which was, and again, I I think Game of Thrones is very enjoyable, the, the series, the book series. Yeah, but series. you can't give it to a middle school. No, you can't. And, yeah. and there's plenty of dystopian and fantasy series that you just, they don't pass that muster, where this is like probably one of the greatest fantasy series of all time mm -hmm. and it does so without having to pull that that stuff in and yeah. man it was so enjoyable so i'm really looking forward to the series they've started writing the second season um well and something i've held for a while now is that television series especially like amazon or hbo those are the best format for oh, yeah. stuff like this the problem with the dark tower movie and I liked it. It was not, you can't get into the dark tower in a two hour movie, oh, even no. with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey, who oh, I think they did a gosh. good job. So but, can you imagine a Stephen King cinematic universe where Matthew McConaughey is the man in black? <laughs> it would be and awesome. I, and Idris Elba is the gunslinger. And I like, I, I'm sorry. Well, like, and then you're pulling in, you're pulling in Salem's lot. Then you've got, oh um, gosh, the stand, like you've got all these, cause it's all connected. Yeah. I mean, whether it's only connected by just a tiniest thread or it's, it's woven together. And I wish all I knew, connected. I wish I knew how Stephen King has, has kind of sold the different rights. Cause I know CVS has a, has a TV show called the stand. I watched a few episodes, couldn't really get into it. Um, but these are like, there's this this potential for mm -hmm. a Stephen King shared universe where you do have some common threads of characters that be through the whole thing. Idris Elba as the gunslinger was brilliant. I loved it. And I I really enjoyed that movie. But I also know that I went and saw that with uh, my partner teacher and my wife. And I could tell they were lost. Yeah. It, it just didn't 
there wasn't enough time to set it up right. Exactly. And, and I know that it was like a, a second iteration for the dark tower, right? There was mm-hmm. the horn was actually present. Well, it was kind of, it was the, it was the movie that followed the coda. Right. But you have to have read the seven other books and the coda yeah. to understand what the heck they're doing in this movie. Like, and it was just, it was a big letdown. It was like, I, like I said, I liked it, but I can totally see why people who had not read the books would be like, what did I just watch? Yeah. It didn't seem to fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, I, I, I look forward to some, and I think they have a dark tower series on like on deck at Amazon or somewhere to, to remake it, restart it. But yeah. I just know they're not going to get Idris Elba probably not going to get Matthew McConaughey. And I was just, what a waste, what a waste. Cause that, yeah. those two. Dennis Haysbert was uh Roland's dad. Yeah. yeah. He oh was good. my gosh. That, that scene was. Yeah. And, and I good. have, I have the, uh, the, the big, uh, not, I guess it is a box set of the comic books mm-hmm. for the dark tower, which are all his, all his past, all the past of the gunslinger Roland Deschain. Yeah. Uh, kind of the stuff that's covered in wizard and glass, but even more so. And it's really well done. You know, I think I remember reading the first few of those from you when, when you got them and they were good. Those were really good. Um, but it's these two big, thick books and one is all the comic books. And the second one is like a massive glossary. Mm-hmm. They're the same size. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, a little bit disappointing, but that happens. No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's the way of things, but I do like that these big companies like Amazon and HBO and Netflix are taking on these literary series and saying, well, let's see what, let's see what we can do with it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I haven't read shadow and bone. I haven't watched it, but I've heard it's really good. So that, um, yeah, my wife and I started watching that. I think she's read the series or we have students who read the series. There's some content in there that I'm not fond of, but, um, it's a fascinating world because it's basically pre-world war one. Russia is the Aww. setting is what, uh, I forget, I forget some of the names. Um, but the, the culture is Russian and there's this magic that's set in there. And then you have this other group of people that are obviously, you know, based on kind of an Asian culture that they're at war with, but there's also this, I've uh, like this massive shadow across their land that separates the two sides of this Russian like world. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's Siberia separating the Western part of Russia, the civilized part with the frontier. Uh, it's an interesting setup. Again, it's, it's based on a bunch of, you know, older teenagers. There's some weird threads that are out there that kind of confuse me and I'm not sure how they connect, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting, it's an interesting world. I, I kind of want to finish the first season, but haven't gotten around to it yet. So. Well, yeah, no, and I, I just, but I think that's just another example of you can do things like that a lot better in the yeah. long form storytelling than you can in movies, even good movies. I, you know, I, I think 
there's a lot of good movies out there that are based on book series, but you, you, you play devil's advocate in your mind. You're like, how much better could this have been if it was a game of Thrones tile type show? You know, I think Harry Potter is up there. Um, I think you could do something with the hunger game, stuff like that as well. I mean, just, there's just so many options out there. You're like, man, it was good. I liked what I saw but it could have been more, um, which is why I'm interested to see how this Lord of the Rings first age show on Amazon mm-hmm. is going to be one. Cause it's going to be the first age. So it's going to be Silmarillion based, but it's also like Peter Jackson knocked it out of the park with Lord of the Rings, the movie. So that's your bar Amazon that you have to hit. If, if you want to keep people engaged like yeah he he hit that out of the park and then made the almost a dud with the hobbit yeah uh yeah it's so like he it, did everything that worked in lord of the rings he did the opposite of in the hobbit yeah, too much yeah. cgi he added too much stuff to the story that wasn't relevant you know to the plot like it's like well let's see if we can stretch this out and it's like no you could have made one really good movie you didn't have to make three so-so movies right all right so what else you want to talk about i i was uh, so we're not really prepared know. which is no fine. we weren't so this was kind of a it kind of crept up on me on friday mm-hmm. um it was september 10th and some of my students are like are we gonna talk about 9-11 at history and i was like uh I honestly hadn't thought too much about it. I hadn't planned on it Mm -hmm. because I don't know what to tell 11 and 12 and 13 year olds who are so they're removed from it. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't honestly don't know how to discuss it with them. I recounted my experience on nine 11 in my mm-hmm. dorm room. And I said, like that, that was my experience was watching it on TV and, and having, you know, my father was a pilot. So I was a little bit freaked out about that until I realized, you know, I found out he was home and I recounted kind of, I, the series of events is still very concrete in my mind. So it's interesting, right? Because it's been 20 years. Right. As of yesterday, it's been 20 years since 9-11 happened. And in that 20 years, an entire generation has been born, a whole new generation that has grown up under the cloud of Mm 9-11 that. And the war on terror, more broadly speaking. And as of August 30th, 31st, the war on terror has come to a, if not end, a much reduced scope. And so now you have possibly a beginning of a new generation that's going to grow up even more removed from the events of 9-11. But like you said, like when I, I remember it, um, you know, my roommate came back into my room and said, Hey, the two towers just got knocked down. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, they're 
some planes hit the two towers and they, they're gone. And so I turn on the TV and like the world stopped for us that day. Yeah. Like, and it stayed stopped for a week, right? Like the stock markets were shut down. All the flights were grounded. Like everything froze for a week while the world came to grips with that. And that was, it, it was surreal. And I, I don't know if I'll ever be in, I hope I don't know if I will be in an experience quite like that again, where the world froze to process this shared tragedy, you know, the only thing I can compare it to is COVID, but COVID wasn't like a sucker punch that stunned you and had you reeling. It's just been this rolling disaster. The the only way I can think of it is the sudden loss of a loved one. Yeah. Like on a smaller scale, if you heard, you know, and and we, we've all had loss in our life, but you know, when you have that, you're just going through a normal day and then you get a phone call and you hear that whomever um, passed away and you're, you're kind of dumbfounded and you can't really like process like what's happening. Like, no, that that's not real. Like what I'm seeing on the TV right now with, I know that's not real. Like I couldn't understand what I was watching with the video of those planes slamming into the towers. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that didn't happen. Like I, and eventually once I accepted that it happened, then I started to like process like my emotions and like, the first one was like indignant, like anger. And then like, like I wanted to get the people that did this to us. Yeah. And, and then like this swelling of love and pride of country. And, and the way I can compare it, like I said, is like the loss of a loved one. Like, no, 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 no. They, they're not gone. They're still here. Mm-hmm. And once you finally do it, like once you finally accept that, no, that person's gone, then you start going through the stages of grief, you know, and like denial. Yeah. And then like, whatever, I don't know what the five stages of grief are, but yeah, uh, you know, like that's, um, was it like bargaining one of them? I, I don't know what it is, but like that, that's, that's what you're going through. And that's like America and to a lesser extent, the world is like going through the five stages of grief, like after the shock. And here we are now 20 years later, but it is very interesting because I, I'm not teaching anymore, but Everyone is like, you know, on Twitter, largely was saying, oh, things for 9-11. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's 9-11. Like, I hadn't thought about it. But I'm like, wow, it's been well, you can, 20 you can tell years. Some, some people definitely, maybe cling is the wrong word, but I'll use it, cling to this date and cling to this event in the same way that people might cling to June 6th or December 7th, this Mm -hmm. date matters. And, and I, and I think about it and I just, I'm not sure that I don't, I I don't want to be posting on Facebook or Twitter anywhere, like December 7th, 1941, a date, which will live in infamy. It's, I don't find, I can't post that and be genuine. And I saw plenty of people posted ton of stuff on Facebook about 9-11. And, and I just, 
I'm not sure how to approach it because yeah. when I discuss with my students, they, they asked and I said, you know, we were about to head off to chapel that morning. And I said, no, we're not going to take time at history. Cause I don't, I don't really know how to talk to you about it because you weren't alive. I don't know how to explain it. I'll tell you in five minutes what I experienced, you know, and, and described watching the buildings because both planes had hit before I turned on the TV. But of course we got to see it over and over and over. Got yeah. people jumping out, watching them collapse. Tough. And I just, I, I find this weird detachment from it because I, I can't, if I, if I sit in it too long, if I think about it too much, there's this kind of like this very dark horror that overcomes me of what that must've been like. And I, mm-hmm. I can't go there. We walked yesterday um, here in town. We have a beam with concrete from the twin towers that is, was placed in a memorial at one of our fire departments here. So they had this big memorial yesterday. So we went down there and uh, my eight-year-old son starts asking me about it because we were picking up my daughter from there. She was with a friend and, and I'm trying to explain it to him. And I find that there's moments that I, I couldn't actually get the words out because I, I was struggling to keep my emotions in check. Hmm. Because I'm trying to explain to him, you know, these people took these planes over and they used them as weapons and they hit these towers and it killed a lot of people. And then I get to the point where I'm explaining that a bunch of firefighters and police officers just went into the buildings. And that's where I really struggled Mm -hmm. because that still never registers correctly with me. Or, or doesn't register completely mm-hmm. because that story, it's the simplest story in the whole thing is that this, these buildings were in danger of collapsing and these firefighters and police officers just went straight into them. Yeah. And I, I couldn't get through that sentence without having to stop a couple of times trying to explain to my eight-year-old son without horrifying him. And of course he's been on this Titanic kick the last week and a half too. So I don't think he's Mm -hmm. too, too distant from disasters. It's just, I I still struggle to, to comprehend. And I, and I have watched things over the years and I've never watched a documentary all the way through on it, except for one, but I can't, I can't sit there and watch and, try to relive this whole thing about how awful it was on the inside. I just can't. I think it's, it's interesting because it, for us, it's, and, and for me personally, it's this weird flux of history because it's been 20 years. Like I said, there's a whole generation of people that didn't live through this, but then it's also for me, a mix of, it is something I lived through. And to be fair, tangentially, I, I didn't know anybody that was in the towers mm-hmm. or on those planes. I didn't, 
you know, I'm not even sure if I know anybody that knew anybody that was, but it was something that America and the world experienced collectively 20 years ago. In real time. In real time. This wasn't yeah. like Kennedy being shot and it being reported on the news 20 minutes or, or an Pearl hour Harbor. Later. Yeah. Or Pearl Harbor, which was reported in the hours afterwards. But that's a great way to, but that's perfect though, is because I remember my mom talking to me about the Kennedy assassination, like her and her mom, like it collected newspaper clippings and like that was something that they lived and they were like trying to explain it to me. I'm like, oh, well, that's bad. Like I, I understood that was bad as a kid, like that our president was killed, you know, and, and then the whole thing with the Lee Harvey Oswald stuff, but, but like, I didn't feel it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and now with nine 11, it's like, I felt it. And I remember how it messed with me emotionally, but now it's been 20 years and there's this whole generation of people that they understand what happened on nine 11 was bad, but you, and they're like, yeah, that's bad. And it's like, no, you don't get it. Like, it's more than it was bad. Like it was devastating at the time. Yeah. And I, I think, but I, I've also personally, like in my own mind, I've kind of put nine 11 in its own compartment in my, in my mm -hmm. brain. And, and I just kind of go, yeah, it's this, this traumatic thing I remember and lived through, but I don't access that. Like, I don't yeah. like, I don't like, intentionally like bring it up and that's just kind of how i am with a lot of trauma in my life i don't <laughs> i don't bring it up but i i you know it's there and it's kind of in its own compartment um you know but when people ask and or like as we're talking about it, it's like oh yeah it did bring up all these thoughts and emotions when it happened and so it's like i kind of reaccess that but Anyway, I'd say the, the only documentary that I've watched all the way through, because all of them are really focused on the attacks themselves. And I just can't, I can't do that, you know, yeah. is uh, nine innings from ground zero, which really is about <coughs> the New York Yankees following the attacks mm -hmm. and then into the World Series, which happened to be the Arizona Diamondbacks beating the, the New York Yankees in yeah. probably one of the best World Series of all time. And it's a fascinating documentary because it, it talks about just not the attacks themselves, but this kind of like these concentric circles around the attacks and people who were affected, but also into baseball and how it all interconnects. Really interesting. And I've really enjoyed that documentary. And I think that's the only documentary that I've ever showed to students. Um, but, you know, and, and I think that's right. funny. I don't access that stuff. But it is interesting because those, the, the moments, I mean, obviously I'll remember watching the videos of the planes hitting, but those, those videos will be played from here until the end of time. Just like the videos of um, the Pearl Harbor, the black and white Pearl Harbor videos, like mm -hmm. those are, the, you know, or the videos from D-Day or Kennedy so being shot, but, but those, that's real quick, but that's not what I think about when I do think about 9-11, what I think about is when George Bush went to ground zero and he stood on the pile of rubble and people saying, we can't hear you. And he said, well, I can hear you. And pretty soon and the whole world can hear you. And pretty soon the people that did this to us, they're going to hear from all of us. Like, that's what I remember. Like it's those other moments or, 
um, the guy on flight 93 calling his wife and he goes, all right, we got to go, let's roll. And that was it. And then like, those are the things that I'll access. And those, those are the things that I'll remember and go like, yeah, that was a terrible day. And the weeks after it were terrible, but there's these little glimmers or the firefighters and police officers Mm -hmm. running in when everyone else is running out, like, you know, and, and much like Pearl Harbor, like there's these moments of valor and beauty in this terrible event. Um, and, and we can discuss the war on terror and, and all the fallout from that separate, but, and I think you should talk about that in some sense separately, because you can divorce the war on terror from nine 11 and say, yes, the war on terror was a mistake and how we operate was, was wrong. But there's these other moments that of heroism and greatness to get lost. If you just say, well, the whole war on terror was, was a waste of time. It's like, no, or, or even if it was, you, you, you don't want to miss these other things that happened that were bright in a dark time. Yeah. Because you can, you can then kind of work yourself backwards and say, well, here's why nine 11 happened. And it's because of these policies, like stop, stop. Mm-hmm. Because uh, aside from this, our government's various conflicting policies over decades that have had negative consequences. Sure. Uh, we're, we're not, we're not, uh, well, you diminish, we're not all- removed from it enough to actually do that. It, it when yeah. we, when we always joke uh, too soon, it's too, too soon, soon. Yeah. to, to say, yeah, no, it's not like we're talking about the 1840s and 50s and saying how these events all led to this event, led to led to this election in 1860 and led to secession in 1861. And, let, you know, it, it's not academic mm-hmm. for most people. It's it, you can't that academic discussion. Can exist, but you have to divorce it from the event and those details you're talking well, about. Well, and you diminish the, the heroism of those firefighters oh, yeah. and police. You diminish the, you know, you can hate George Bush as a president, but in that moment, yeah, I probably never loved my country more than when he stood on that pile of rubble with that firefighter and said those words. Like, that's an honest to God truth. Like, yeah, like, yeah I, I think he made a ton of mistakes after that. But in that moment, he said exactly what I needed to hear. And, mm-hmm. and I think... If you just say, well, Bush is terrible. Okay, sure. Great. He is. But there was this moment, you know, and and I think we diminish those moments by lumping it all together and saying, well, this, and then whatever our conclusion is. Yeah. Yeah. So the the thing I was going to say is because, you know, we, our generation looks back on the Kennedy video, right? And the mm-hmm. Zapruder film. We look back on the D-Day film and it's really fascinating. When some videos were shown this past week of events on 9-11, I was watching them and it's like, these aren't in HD. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. These aren't in 4K. And I'm looking, I'm like, these, this is a 20-year-old video. This is old. Yeah. I if 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 I was watching something on TV with this quality of film today, I I wouldn't 
like if sports came on and this was a quality of film that we had 20 years ago and it was shown to me today, I, I wouldn't accept it. I'd be like, no, I need HD. I need 4K. Like this isn't good enough. It is and pretty. Go ahead. And you're, you're looking at people and they're they're pulling out cell phones, but they're flip phones. They're all yeah. flip phones. There's it's not funny. an iPhone in sight. There's the, there's the video of... I, 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 hear this young woman's voice as they're watching the second plane slam into the tower and they had this video of them filming it you know because they saw the first tower burning and i think they're in an apartment or hotel or whatever looking on the balcony and i was like i'm like who had a camera at this time because cell phones were not ubiquitous in america and especially phones with cameras Oh yeah. They're recording like cameras that can record. I'm like so somebody had like camcorder like video recorder. Like yeah. A, yeah. Well, a handheld. Or a handheld. Like they're like, go get the camcorder. We got this is we gotta get this on film. And I'm not saying like they're doing that in a narcissistic or you know, paparazzi well, I, type way, I, but in, like they're like, like, like what's so ubiquitous for now is like, oh, any event we see, we immediately turn our phone I, on. But I, back I, then, like that was an exception. The fact that that video that we got that video from that random woman. Yeah. Can you imagine the amount of video coverage we would have on that event if it happened today? Well, look at Beirut a year ago with the explosion in the Harbor. We, there were like 17 different videos because that many, there's probably more than that, that many people saw the smoke and were like, well, this is interesting enough to take video of. And I've got unlimited video of it. Turns out to be a nothing burger. I can just delete it, but look at the Mm -hmm. smoke. And then it explodes. So we had like dozens of angles on that massive explosion. And in New York city in 2001, you know, the first plane, I I don't know how many videos are of the first plane. I know there's at least one. It's the firefighters who are doing a training exercise. Mm -hmm. They hear a plane and they, point the camera up right as the first plane hits. And again, it's, it's camcorder quality. Yeah. But still all of that in my head is in HD. And I think for the generations that lived through Kennedy, it's, it's in their mind, HD. And, and it's because when they see the things in those videos, like those kind of cars and those kind of clothing, they saw that in everyday life, so they can fill it in, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of an odd little No, it makes perfect sense aside. because that's exactly how I saw it. When the <laughs> when the tower came down and the people were running and mm-hmm. the smoke and dust was billowing, like it was as if I was in an IMAX yeah. theater. I, and I wasn't. I was in my dorm room on a couch right. watching it on a 27 TV that maybe, you know, whatever the pixels were back then. Like, but in my mind... It I was can real. still see it, was it right as now clear. as if I was there. And I can imagine people that saw video of Pearl Harbor, especially videos after <clears throat> it had the same effect because they're seeing uh, young men in uniform and they've seen those uniforms in real life in front of their eyes. So all the details and gaps that the quality of the film leaves out, they fill in with their mind. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I see these videos from 9-11, I find it almost humorous to myself that the quality of film from 20 years ago is a far cry from what we have today, but that's not how I remember it. Mm -hmm. And 
it's 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 just a strange thing it is it is amazing how how far we've gone from just in video technology from Pearl Harbor to Kennedy to 9-11 to today, right? Like it's inconceivably far the leaps and, you know, it's just, but you're right. Like I've seen videos. I'm like, gosh, that's so not so much 9-11, but like old sports videos from Mm -hmm. old, I say old, yeah, but I was from 2000. I'm like, gosh, the, the quality is so bad. But when I remember watching it, like I remember when, when the Packers won the Super Bowl in 96, I remember watching it. And I'm like, this is the clearest picture ever. The, there's no way the technology is ever going to get better than this, whatever yeah. this is. Yeah. And and now I watch, I'm like, gosh, how could I ever watch anything back then? So, yeah, it's a very interesting point. We, we survived. Somehow. We survived the we bad made technology. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, that is, that's a great point is that, it, like you said, it for me, it kind of snuck up on me. Like I really hadn't thought about 9-11, especially that it was 20 years yeah. until I saw a bunch of social media posts. I'm like, oh yeah, it is 9-11. I, like it's just not something I bring to mind unless it's brought to my mind. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's some people that... I could tell had been thinking about it a lot in the weeks leading up to it. Obviously people were planning events. So those people had it on their mind. Other people just seem to have it, you know, here's this big event coming up. Mm-hmm. And as one of my students said, uh, she said to another student, she said, is this a holiday? I said, no, no, I don't. That's not how we categorize it. First of all, because we don't get the day off. Second of all, because I think it's just a national day of remembrance is might be the official title. Um, But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. I mean, just, just like Pearl Harbor, it would be a day of remembrance, but yeah. Yeah. It's been wild. 20 years, man. That's just crazy to think how the time has gone by. So anything else that uh, you want to go over or discuss, man? I don't know. If not, I, I, have, two, I have two questions for you. Oh, okay. And it's something because when we had Jack Peterson on, he asked us this question when we were discussing Starship Troopers. I go, so I, I broke the question into two. So I'm going to ask you the first one. As of today, what is the greatest nation on earth currently? So currently existing? Yeah, currently existing. So you can't talk, you can't say the, the Roman Empire because they no longer exist. I you know, the, the question is I don't know what great means. Well, and that's why I'm asking. So, so what do you define great as? And then we can answer who is great. So what does great mean also Mm -hmm. goes into what are the things that you value? Sure. I absolutely, I think some of the things that I value are things like Liberty, individual Liberty is, is is the individual Liberty to, to be in charge of your own agency, 
to the greatest mm-hmm. extent possible is a value that I hold. Mm-hmm. Another value that I hold is peace and order because we can't, we can't be absolutely chaotic in our, in our dealings with other people. I generally think that the more free you are to make your own choices, generally human behavior will lead to good mutual outcomes, but oftentimes it will be abused. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, it's hard to not say the United States is that greatest country because it has the potential to provide prosperity and order and freedom to as many people as possible, given those constraints. Because while people will be free and will be prosperous, not everyone will be as prosperous as the most. So you bring up an interesting point with with your freedom, like being the first value. Because I think there's countries, I know there's countries, Ireland being one, the Republic Mm -hmm. of Ireland being one, that like if you look at the indexes or whatever, they are more free than we are. They have more liberty, economically, yeah, they have more economic freedom. And as a result, you could say that people have more freedom. Now, do they have a declared Bill of Rights? No. I mean, that's a a very unique American thing. Um, But... I think there's other countries out there. You could say these people are more free. However, America's economic standing and military power allow us to have the potential to help people achieve liberty far more than Ireland ever could. They just... They just don't have the the might to do it. And I'm not talking about might in a let's go prosecute a war in some far off land. I mean, the reason one of the big reasons there have been no European wars in almost, well, 80 years now, right? Or almost 80 years is because America guarantees the free trade of the nation of the world's seas our Mm -hmm. navy ensures that the seaways are open and so that britain france and germany don't have to fight each other to ensure their trade we we said we got it we'll cover you so you guys don't have to worry about this anymore we're going to guarantee that the seas are safe and that you guys can trade and build up your economy so you can spend all your money you know building up your industry and removing the primary reason that you guys would fight each other. And that's something that America and probably only America could do. Now that's landscape is changing, but that's what's guaranteed the almost century of peace as far as the European continent goes and North America um, as well. And much of Southeast Asia, depending on what country we're talking about. So in that regard, it could say, yeah, America is the greatest nation on the world 
because we've guaranteed the safety of hundreds of millions of others around the world through our, our Navy. And as a result, we indirectly promoted democracy and liberty in many of those nations. Now there's many other nations where we totally interfered. We totally interfered with their ability to, to be free. And in some cases actively went against that um, to achieve, you know, our own economic interests. Um, But I, I would agree with that statement that America has the ability within itself for people to be free. Although We've got our own domestic issues with that and our actions since the 1940s have given Europe an era of freedom or peace that it hasn't had since Rome um, and stability that it hasn't had since the Roman empire, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So one thought that, consistently occurs to me is that idea of freedom because I know I'm almost certain we've mentioned it on this podcast, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm. in order to reach that self-realization, self-actualization, which I think is necessary to actually take on that freedom to to self-actualize that freedom and embrace it and use it and make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You, you need to have all those needs met. Yeah. So I'd say in the United States, a good portion of our society has those needs met all the way through. There's plenty that don't. So the question is, can we, can we say that we are securing freedom if if people's needs are not met? And that's sometimes where I struggle against my, I guess, libertarian uh, sensibilities. And I would lean into what does what does the social fabric need to do in order to meet everyone's needs? And one of the issues, and I know there's some people that have brought this up. What are the needs? What is it? Food, shelter, food, water. shelter. But then also, I mean, once you get above that baseline, you know, if somebody can't get to self-actualization, they can't be free. Like that, that's required to be free. And the other thing is, is to be culturally literate. And I know that goes into something with Edie Hirsch, who the whole uh, core knowledge, not common core curriculum, core knowledge curriculum, mm-hmm. is we all have to be speaking the same language. We have to be talking about the same things. Uh, which so, is so the real quick, the physiological needs, the most basic are mm-hmm. food, water, warmth, rest. Right above that is security, safety. The third tier is intimate relationships and friends. Fourth tier is esteem prestige and feeling of accomplishment. And then the fifth tier is self-actualization. So if you can provide the first two layers, physiological food, water, warmth, rest, and security. The rest is a result of freedom. Exactly. So like, so securing those friendships and being able to have relationships that are enriching and nourishing uh, in order to feel that esteem, 
But you can't do that if those bottom ones are not met. And the question is, how do we meet those? Mm-hmm. And we would have said 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that's met with your community. And your community was your town of 150. And we've seen studies. Basically, people really can't have a social network outside of 150 people that's meaningful. That's why, and I think it's uh, Amish, some Amish communities, once they hit a certain number, they actually insist on breaking apart because you can't hold on to the community if it's above 150 or above 200. People stop knowing each other, right? So um, I think uh, Latter-day Saint churches do a similar thing. And yeah, I think as as their wards grow, they go build a new ward because they don't want to have like a mega church where they have 3000 right. people showing up. Cause like, well, I don't know anybody here. But again, the, the social fabric that would make sure those bottom tier needs are met as well as some of the relational needs are net needs are met are things like small towns and your family and outside your family is a, a church or a place of worship. And those things, you know, when you fall on hard times, where do you go? You go to your family first. And then when your family isn't there or can't do it, then you go to that local community. Well, if you live in a big city of 5 million people and you aren't part of a, of a close knit community, that social fabric, <clears throat> then you are literally living alone among 5 million people. And the question is, how do we as a society, because we're not going to force everyone into different churches, how do we meet those needs when they're not being met in their communities? Yeah, it's a great question. Or, or they haven't voluntarily joined a community. And so you go to things that solutions that, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the social uh, safety net people would say is, well, we got to provide these things. I, I, I don't disagree that it needs to be provided somehow. I do disagree with the method because I'm not sure that that people like us who are middle class need to be paying the bill for those things. I'm not saying I'm unwilling to, but I don't think the burden should fall on us. So it's this tricky thing. You know, you get into like Medicare or, you know, uh, I guess single payer health insurance. That's provided by the government. We see it in every <clears throat> every first world nation, except the United States. Well, there's there's drawbacks to it, obviously, but there's also some some benefits we get from not engaging in that kind of system. Are we are we making ourselves better by not having it? Or are we preventing ourselves from actually making some important progress? It's hard to tell. Because we see what happens when you give power to large bureaucracies in other countries is they can be abused Mm -hmm. and that you never know who might be in charge next, right? Like every time that, that one, that those who supported Trump were totally willing to let him do something outside of his powers they're now screeching and hollering when Biden wants to do the same thing. Don't give power to an office when you're in charge, because the next time when you're not in charge, those powers will remain. Sure. 
That's, well, that's a tricky thing. And so if you're going to create a bureaucracy that can make kinds of decisions that would take care of you, they can also make decisions that could harm you. And that you have to be careful with that. No, I, I, I agree, but it's interesting because you said you're, or, you know, in America, we, Liberty is, is kind of top of the, mm-hmm. what do we value as a nation? And the preamble of the constitution says in order to form a perfect union, but eventually and secure the blessings of Liberty. So if the blessings of Liberty are that self-actualization, mm-hmm. then how do we secure that? And, you know, for the longest time, America's system, you know, I would say right up until the 1900s was here's this land, go stake your claim and make what you will of it. Um, and largely we will ensure that you are safe, you know, um, be it against foreign enemies or as you settle the land against the tribes of natives that we are forcing off their own land into reservations. But, um, you know, we will secure your safe passage and stuff like that while we take away their land and their liberty. But you know, that was it. That was, that was kind of the extent of largely, you know, and the, the, securing the blessings of liberty and then in the 1900s that started to change as we industrialized more and um urbanized and urbanized more and that we became less of an agrarian nation and those questions came up it's like yeah i got a job at a factory but i don't have the blessings of liberty i'm working uh, unsustainable hours my kid is working at the factory i'm getting hurt or my friend died um and I still don't make enough to provide a good life for my family. And so then that question came and said, well, how do we provide? And so then we said, well, let's introduce labor laws. And then after the great depression hit, then Roosevelt came in and that's when Medicare and Medicaid, not Medicaid, but Medicare, social security, those things started to come into the forefront where we said, no, we need to do more to take care of our people outside of giving them an opportunity to get a job or stake their claim. And now, as you mentioned, it's like, it's kind of gone. Do we want to go to that next step where we start socializing those bottom tier needs um, as far as food, water, shelter, rest, or not? Is there another way that we can secure that bottom tier that allows you to self-actualize? And it's funny because Dan Carlin said, almost as a throwaway away on one of his podcasts a couple of years ago, he goes, you know, I, I, I tend to believe that the best way to have freedom is to make sure that people's needs are taken care of, and then they can go pursue the life that will mm-hmm. satisfy them. And it, it was so like, he said it so just nonchalantly as he does. And it's just like, Oh yeah, I guess I see where you're coming from. However, the point you make, Eric, and especially when it comes to the federal government, it's like it's so big and it's so massive that it, it, it one, runs basically by itself, but two, mm-hmm. can also be 
terribly abused, especially in the executive, um, depending on the person in that office, as we saw with Trump. But, you know, he ain't the only one um, that's abused the presidency, uh, you know, so it it is an interesting question. I don't know what the answer is. I would say yeah. more local government control in the sense that I think state and local governments, because they are smaller by definition are more efficient and are easier to hold a, to account because they are smaller. Um, whereas the national government is not. Yeah. The, the local governments have a tendency to swing further in each direction. That's true. When they do. The. The federal government, I, I, there's parts of the federal government, I think, like you said, they run on their own. So when we went from George W. to Obama, there was a lot of promises in there about the war on terror coming to an end, about Guantanamo being closed, about all those kind of things. Sure. And uh, what we saw over his eight, eight year presidency was a, a huge uptick in drone strikes and surges and soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, like a lot of these big moves that did not jive with his, what which he is said. interesting. Well, so is yeah. that, was that him or it was that the fact that the machine of the federal government operates on its own and what the president is, is simply the human decider to turn left, turn right. Which is or go remarkable, or go which makes more remarkable that one Trump, made a deal with the Taliban to leave in 2020. And we can debate the merits of how he made that deal, but that, and then that Joe Biden followed through with that deal in 2021 and actually ended the war. And it's remarkable that it happened yeah. because we thought it was going to end for 20, for 20 years. We thought, right. We didn't, we didn't think we were going to be here for 20 years. Yeah. And Obama, as much as he said, he wanted to end the war. He, like you said, he surged in 2010. He added more soldiers mm -hmm. when he thought we thought in 2008, we're like, well, we thought you were the guy that was going to end this. Like, and so it shows you that the machine or the, the functions of the national government are almost inexorable. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I mean, no, because you need part people of this, who know how the yeah. thing works. They're the ones who operate it. You know, how many people live in in Virginia around Washington DC who are basically sure. they are the federal government mm -hmm. and there's 535 people that we elect to go there and make the decisions but then it's carried out by people who will will yeah, they, do the, the work for the four senate years. and the congress create create these committees and say all right well here's the armed services committee and here's well, the even, new direction from the committee but then that's it and then it even goes beyond that, you know, the the Joint Chiefs, they're the ones who, while they may have changed, those guys are there by rank. The president doesn't select the Joint Chiefs. So they're there. They've been there the whole time. Maybe some guys have retired, new guys have come in, but there's a continuity. And that's that's, I guess, uh, where we're kind of good in one is, respect. Yeah, it's it, but, but it's also it can be a problem in another. It's you it doesn't matter who's really in the office at the time. We still do things the same way now, but going back to the needs is interesting because one of the things 
that the federal government does, I think, fantastically well is Social Security. I mean, it's been sending checks out fine for decades. Mm -hmm. Now, we can talk about how we it's not going to be solvent, but that's not because the Social Security Administration is pilfering funds or spending recklessly. It's, it's because Congress. Our, fund, our Congress is not doing their job and how they're funding it. But the Social Security system works fine. And Medicare, for all its warts, works perfectly fine. So the, the question isn't, you know, could we expand Medicare or could we make the child tax credits permanent? Yeah, we could, and they'd work fine. But it becomes more a question of, is that how we want to answer the social safety net question? Mm -hmm. Or is there a better way to do that? Um, is, well, is there decentralization or an interesting option that really came into the fore last year was UBI, mm -hmm. um, you know, is universal benefits, just giving people money and saying, all right, go take care of your business. I mean, there's, there's I'm not saying it is that. the answer. And, I, but, and I've, and I've changed my tune on that with some of my un, new understanding of, you know, modern monetary theory. And, and we, we issue our own currency here in the United States. So we have absolute control about how much we want to have in circulation. And if we want to look at the deficit or the debt, rather than looking at, at it as debt, that is the federal government's investment into the American public. Well, that's one way to look at it. And if, uh, if it can solve some problems, it's fine. There are some things that are true. You have to pull some out or you will get inflation. And then that's the next question. Where do you pull it out? And usually Congress goes through this process where they say, here's this new, uh, here's this new bill that requires that, 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 that's going to cost money. And here are the pay for us. Here's how we pay for it. When really we, it's not like that money is going directly. I mean, it's all in computers anyways. So we don't need the pay for us. We simply need to say this money has to come out of the system somewhere through taxes. And it's not like when I pay my taxes, those go to pay for something. My money just disappears. Mm -hmm. It just disappears out of the system to prevent inflation from running rampant. And it's, it's the amount of money in circulation. It's, um, the actual number of inflation and it it's uh, or the amount of money being taken out of taxes. And it's also where unemployment stands at any given moment. And those three things are tied together and they work in a certain way. And that's where the balance has to happen. The tricky part is where do you pull the money out? And everyone says, well, tax the rich. The wealth tax seems like a wildly ridiculous idea that could just, you're going to tax something that somebody has over 10 years until it's gone. Doesn't make any sense, but but if you're going to do an income tax, you simply have to follow the money. You put the money into the system somewhere and it flows a direction. You just take it out at the end point, well, which it's is funny probably going to be Amazon. I, so, <laughs> I think the uh, value added tax is something that America needs to adopt. But that's interesting. I just don't understand it. So like I've read about it multiple times. I'm like, the you, real, you it ends up just being taxed at the end. But, but at so every pretty level- much Every other country in the world does a value-added tax instead of a national sales well, they tax. Also do which the is... metric system, and as I've seen in several posts on Facebook, we <laughs> literally use anything 
before using the metric system. I actually saw a really good video about why we don't use the metric system and it actually made a lot of sense, but that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but the value added tax is it, instead of a national sales tax where we say, all right, sales tax across the nation for anything sold in America would be 5%. Instead of that, you say, if, um, if a tree logging company goes into the woods, chops down a tree and then sells it to a lumber yard, they sell it for a certain price and that's taxed. The lumber yard then turns those trees into planks of wood. They've now added value. Mm -hmm. So if they bought the lumber for a hundred bucks or the tree for a hundred bucks and they added $10 of value, that $10 of added value is now taxed at 5% or whatever it is. Okay. So then they sell that wood to a furniture maker. The furniture maker adds more value. So now it's $125. Mm -hmm. That that new, now additional $15 is taxed again. So anytime you add value to the product, the new, the added value is taxed. So it's not $115 taxed. It's a it's the 15 that gets taxed because that's the added value. And so each stage that these materials go through and become more valuable, that new added value gets taxed and goes to the government coffers. So it's an interesting way of the government getting money without just doing a straight income tax or a flat sales tax. And like I said, pretty much every other country in the world does it. We're the only ones that don't because we just don't like the idea of a national sales tax. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there's drawbacks to it. It doesn't add costs from what I've seen. It doesn't like make cars more expensive because the, the costs are just built into the process of producing. Yeah. Like, I'd say while I'm not a fan of taxes in general, I'd rather there be an income tax on individuals than taxes on corporations. And the reason I, I feel it, well, first of all, corporations are going to use a massive amount of money to find their way out of every tax anyways. Well, this would so, be a way to tax a corporation without an income tax on right, a corporation. Corporations, um, you make your profit. That's great. We want you to have that money so that you can reinvest it. That's, that's the goal that you take that money and you're like, we have a bunch of money. We can now hire more people. And in the income taxes, I think a, a better way. Um, just because the other thing about corporate taxes is if you have a low corporate tax, it's going to attract people. States do this to each other all the time where they draw businesses in by giving tax breaks. Like you get a tax break, but you don't because you're not threatening to leave. Just do away with corporate taxes in general. Sure. Um, and I mean, income taxes, then it's on individuals who are getting paid. Again, I don't necessarily agree with income tax, but if you want something that's simple and, and works across the board, I think that's better than corporate taxes because corporate taxes, you can abuse in a way where you can give a tax break to Amazon that does not need it, but you're still going to tax a mom and pop shop. And I think that's, that shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be, I don't think government should be lobbying businesses to come to them with lower taxes. Just. just no, I agree with but, that. I think that's, that's a grift. I don't necessarily agree with you on the not having corporate taxes, but I do agree that corporate tax policies 
heavily abused in America in that it it it, it does punish smaller corporations because you know Amazon brings a lot more jobs and supposed benefit to yeah. a community than you know mom and pop's hardware store. So I, I do agree with that. But it's interesting because the discussion we're having is on how do we provide these needs. And I mean, I think no matter what, and I don't know if people like to hear this, no matter what you pick, there's going to be some kind of government imposition mm-hmm. to meet those needs. Now, if it's through economic policy, if it's through uh, laws that either encourage or restrict certain behavior in the type of economic policy you pick, it doesn't matter what it is. The federal government is going to have some sort of dictate to ensure those needs are met, be it, you know, shelter, food, water, and rest. Now in a truly free, like anarchic free society, the government would not have say in that. But any, you know, we we accept the government's involvement in Social Security and Medicare. We go, yeah, that works fine. We're we're okay with that, providing for the needs of those who are retired or of low means. We're we're generally fine with that. We're also fine with local and state governments providing police protection and firefighters, which ensures our security and safety. You know, and so I, I think in some regards, we've already accepted that the government can provide those needs. We just don't want them to overreach in how they provide those needs. And we definitely don't want them to make it economically punitive as much as we can to provide those needs. One discussion I heard on, uh, on you know, the big government, small government thing. Uh, because generally, I think in my past, kind of in my libertarian sensibilities, again, is big government is bad, small government is better, you know, government small enough that you can, what, drown it in the bath. But as somebody pointed out, you don't want, you don't want, a, you don't want it just to be small. And you don't want it just to not be big, you want it to fit the particular needs you want it to be efficient you want it to work and if that requires it to be big then it needs to be big one case would be it's probably good for the federal government to really scale up in 1941 you're going to need a lot of federal employees say five million american soldiers in order to take on the obstacle it needs to be larger in that case but effective Mm -hmm. Um, at the end of the war, well, the U.S. government lost half of its employees, at least. Why? Because we didn't need them. So it needs to be able to work for the needs. Yeah, it needs to meet the particular. moment. When I've, when I've kind of leaned into the anarchic part of it, and, and, I, and I do appreciate some of the consistency there in terms of this is, uh, you know, if we're all left to do what we want, we will generally cooperate. And I think that's generally true. Most people just want to do what they want to do. However, that relies on one thing. And I think I brought this up when we talked about Starship Troopers is that 
um, if we don't share common virtues or we don't share common culture, it, it doesn't work out. You know, if you and I are going to operate freely and we're going to freely associate, but you have wildly different virtues than I, then, then I have, I, I can't rely on a baseline for us to communicate and share. And so the business dealings between us, um, you could be deceitful. And if I am unaware of that or am kind of not wise to it, then I can be taken advantage of. And I kind of lost that train of thought then. If we if if we're if we're trying to operate individually without and, and totally freely associate, and there's there's nothing in place to work uh work our behavior other than social pressure mm-hmm. there there's there's little accountability other than social pressure and as we are not all living on farms with three acres each well and if one of the you, issues is is we 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 live in a society that's so interconnected that we have to have some ground rules and we have to have some systems in place to enforce them and if and, well and and if if you want to use social pressure to get people to not abuse each other you're gonna have to apply so much social pressure that by default they're no longer free i mean it may not be the government dictating you know that they're not free but are you gonna force everyone to be a good person because then you're eliminating their free will and i think that's that if we if we had no rules for things like if there were no actual rules for slander and uh what's the other one libel libel and and false advertising and some standards for how we communicate, how businesses communicate, what they can say in advertisements, who they can advertise to. If we didn't have any of those rules and we was completely open and and free and we had our current situation where the amount of information that's out there is out there, Mm -hmm. uh, people would be taken in scams at a, at a 20 or a hundred times more so than they are now. Yeah. Because it's nearly impossible as it is to, to really understand an article that might be posted to Facebook. And somebody on TikTok had this great stitch video where they, they discuss this. And he said, there's so much information out there. If I look for, if I search for uh, caffeine can make you go blind, I will find an article that backs up my point. And if I search for one that says coffee will make, uh, will improve your eyesight, I can find an article that backs that up. Mm-hmm. So we, while we tend to think we're educated and intelligent enough to tell the difference between good information and bad information or misinformation, uh, we aren't because mm-hmm. Facebook is a good evidence for that. Uh, can you imagine if, if, if businesses and publishers could would not be held accountable ever for mis for printing falsehoods. Uh, well, and a big part of the, you know, the labor laws of the early 1900s that were instituted is because prior to this America had a very laissez faire mm-hmm. government. And they said, no businesses can basically do what they want. And they're, we're not going to interfere with that because we don't want to interfere with business and our economy. Well, that led to a bunch of terrible things. 
Yeah. And so then the government, I think under Roosevelt with the square deal stepped in and then it got expanded. Um, his square, Teddy Roosevelt and the square deal, but that got expanded, you know, eventually into the labor laws that we know today and with OSHA and all that stuff, because people left to their own devices weren't looking out for each other. And I, I, and they tend not to, you know, you, you are always going to seek out the best position for that, which is closest to you, which first is you and then your close family. And everyone's going to do that. Everything's going to do it. Uh, unions will do it. Corporations will do it. Legislators will do it. People being elected will do it. Uh, you're going to. Your neighbor will do it in the HOA. Like it, it's, yeah. mean, it's, it's just part of who we are. It's human nature and human nature has not changed. Yeah. And, and we can try to educate it out and, and that's somewhat effective. We can try to build virtues in and that's, that's somewhat effective, but um, you're always one generation away from mm-hmm. losing those virtues or as Reagan said, losing that democracy. So it needs to be taught and it needs to be educated in. Um, but humans are going to operate in that free way. And generally I think that's good because if you're, if I'm operating for my benefit, and you're operating for your benefit and you and I could come to an agreement. Sure. Then it will be mutually beneficial. And if what I'm offering you is going to hurt you, then you're not going to take it. Well, and, and, I and think- then that works. But when you scale that up, then you can have corporations that a um, have no expiration date. B are treated like a human treated like a yeah, person the rights of a person. Um, can, but can also then donate in, you know, can make uh, political donations in, in amounts that are not on par with a person, um, can act more like a, um, more like not a person, but like an immortal superhuman. (laughs) And it's like that, sorry, that, that doesn't work. I think corporations are a great tool for actually distributing wealth to a lot of employees and building up new things. They're great. But I think there should be a death penalty for corporations that severely break the rules. Sure. Like, why not? If your corporation and what you do leads to the death of people knowingly, your corporation should be given the ax. It doesn't mean we execute anyone, but your, your corporation ceases to exist. Stocks drop to zero. Assets and so, are liquidated. Yeah. And uh, they should get the death sentence and they should have no part, no point in, in politics. And I think that's a good thing. And I've heard this recently on several podcasts where they discuss businesses wading in on social issues and uh, social well, it, political it, issues. It's like, it, I'm sorry, Coca-Cola. I, I give you my money because you sell something that tastes so sweet and good to me. And I know yeah. it's not good for me, but I'm willing to pay you. But stop preaching to me something that I may or may not be interested in. I just want your sweet sugar water. That's all I want. Well, and I think that's one. Yeah, 100 percent. But I I think Pepsi, take a hike. Nobody likes it. Come on, get out of here. And uh, I, I but I think it's interesting is is we we talk about freedom. And I don't know if we understand that freedom also requires responsibility, you know, and I think so often we go, well, freedom means I can do what I want. It's like, well, sure. 
You can. You have the right to make any choice that you want. But those choices come with consequences, which is one thing that we're this country fails to understand is that the choices we make have very real world consequences. And COVID probably being the most apparent example right now, but it's not just COVID. I mean, it it's anything really, right? Like the trope, I thought this was America, right? That's something that's been going on for decades where you think any silly behavior that you want to engage in doesn't have a consequence, but it does. But then the other part is there's a responsibility. If we're free, then we're basically saying we don't need someone else above us, the government, to tell us how to behave because we've got this. Well, if that's the case, then we need to live like we've got this. And then that requires us to look out for our fellow man. And now when we were primarily an agrarian society, that was a lot easier, Eric, right? Because you said the communities were smaller. You knew yeah. everybody in town. And so if somebody was down on their luck, it was personal. It, it was it was personal to you to help them as a community get back on their feet. And it doesn't mean everybody was more altruistic, but everybody knew everyone else. And so it was a lot harder to ignore the plight of your fellow man mm -hmm. when you knew their name and you knew where they lived. And, and, and so we, we fail to kind of accept those other aspects of freedom, meaning there's consequences for your freedom, not just government or you know, punitive, but there's just consequences for your choices. And there's a responsibility for you. If you're going to say, we don't need an authority over us, then you need to behave as if you are being responsible, not only for yourself and your family, but for those in your community, your neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of Paul and it, it's not a hundred percent tied, but where Paul says in Romans six, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then I think a lot of people in this country think, well, because I'm free, I can make as many stupid choices as I want. Yeah. And that's okay. And it's like, no, that's not the point. Like, because you're free doesn't mean you have a license to be stupid. It's because you, you're free, you have an opportunity to be better. And I think that's a perspective shift that we need. And so I think when, that's something that, go ahead. So when we, when you ask the question, what is the greatest country in the world? And when we say, well, we think it's America because we're free, it's, it doesn't end there. No. We think it's America because we're free and because we hold that up as the highest ideal. Because we're free, we can also reach our greatest potential as individuals, of which is taking on the greatest responsibility for those around us. Mm -hmm. And... Because we're free, we can make the right choices of our own free will. Yeah. And not by coercion. But it requires work. And I yeah. think that's the yeah, problem is that we, we, we don't understand, and myself included, I'm not trying to like throw anyone else under the bus, but it's like, it requires work to be a better person. And it requires work to look out for your fellow man, you know, and, and we, we, we hold to Judeo-Christian principles, if not the actual faith. Um, well, you know, Christ wasn't just 
calling on you to look out for number one. He's calling on you to, to help your brothers and sisters. And, and, you know, the story of the, who is your neighbor? Like, yeah. And that is tricky because we can, we can see that. Yeah. And we can, we can point to, well, he's not asking you to elect somebody mm-hmm. to enforce that taking care of. He's, he's largely indifferent to the government. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's he, telling he was, you, this is on you yeah. individually to go take care of these people because you are capable and you're probably endowed with some wealth or just the talent to take care of people. And it exactly. takes very little. What did it take the Samaritan 30 minutes out of his day, probably longer, but didn't take much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and when we look at things like, and this is where it's tricky because you say, well, we should, we shouldn't have, we might hear, we shouldn't have too much regulation in business. And generally I'd agree because we want them to operate freely and make free association. And, and that should spur more prosperity in general. But when you get to a place in the early 1900s where people are regularly losing limbs in machines and they're, they're dying of these ulcers from different chemicals going through their feet and children are working and you have these terrible conditions, at some point you need to say, okay, um, this is, while we get that this fits in with the, you can do what you want. Everyone gets to make the choices. Obviously these employees came here of their own free will and made the choice to work here. This isn't working for the larger group. So how do we make a choice as a bunch of individuals in this situation, including the workers and the, the managers and the owners to make sure that everyone's benefiting in a way that, that actually benefits everybody. How do we do that? Well, and, and one of the ways we do that is through regulation. Like this isn't, and I think I mentioned this uh, probably in, in a text message. Are we, are we in a pendulum swing right now where we spent maybe 20, 30 years really, really pushing that pendulum. Uh, we can say to the right, you know, uh, deregulation, letting businesses do a lot of, do whatever they want. And it's led to a ton of prosperity in terms of there's money in these businesses, but now we're getting to a point. There's nobody actually going back to work. Wages are stagnant. Um, Production is through the roof, but wages have not caught up with that. Are we about to swing that pendulum back to the left where we say, okay, now it's time to, to get, to get the workers and employees theirs. Is, Is that where we are now? Is that what the next 10 to 15 years is going to look like, where we actually work towards making sure that, that the workers, the middle class are, can now benefit from all of this. I I mean, I I think that tension is always going to exist. And I I think it should always exist. I think that. Oh yeah, no, no, I I agree. But I, and I think it, you might be right. I mean, I think the past couple of decades has been moving to the right on that swing. And and I think it will start pulling back to the other side, to the left, but it's interesting as you were talking and maybe this is a good way to wrap it up, but I I was thinking, comparing this to sports. And I think 
in my mind, the proper amount of regulation I would like in America, and we'll say with business, for example, is how they officiate soccer around the world. In that there's a ref, there's a set of rules. Everybody knows the rules. They're the simplest rules. And if you step out of line, you know, and if you do it, you get a little egregious, yellow card, red card, you know, and that that's it. But I think America, we're a little bit more like American football, where every year it's a spectacle on what rules are getting changed in the massive rule book that all the referees have to follow. Nobody knows what a catch is. Nobody. And nobody, every every foul has a long explanation. Yeah. It's going to be this and this many yards. And you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But that and, was, and then, that hit wasn't the same as a hit two plays ago that didn't get yeah. called. And, and and everybody hates the ref, which are the regulators in this in this mm-hmm. scenario. Everybody hates the refs, no matter what call they make, because they're not letting us have any fun in the game. You know, and, and I think that's that, that's too much regulation. That's that's more than I, I think is is good for the country or good for the people. Got to have a replay every few minutes. But we do need to have rules. We do need to have Mm -hmm. um, a a set of regulations or rules that the people can follow. They know what they are. They're clear and they are easily enforced. You know, what that is in in a practical sense is something that will always be debated. But we know it's there. We, We know what we want. It's just how do we get there, I think, is is the question that people actually are debating. Not not whether or not we should or shouldn't, but how much and how do we get there is is really the the questions that we're trying to answer here. And in our form of government, it's always gonna be too much and not quite enough, somewhere in the middle. And in the end, it will be a dumpster fire of a bill of a poorly written law that will be abused yep. by anybody that can abuse it. Yeah. Cause that's well, how we do things. Well, because it'll have been lobbied for by Amazon and Coca-Cola. So, Oh yeah. Anyway, well, as long as people ask, stop asking me, is Pepsi? Okay. <laughs> Cause it's not, I'm sorry. It's not Pepsi's not. okay. <laughs> Never has it been okay. So, but if they want to sponsor us, that's why hey. I always answer is Pepsi. Okay. <sighs> fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's not okay. It's fine. But yeah. Uh, all right i think that wraps up this episode of dab on after dark see who says we need prep work we just went two hours (laughs) with no prep i'm sure it's pure gold too oh it is so all right well behalf of eric thank you guys for joining us i'm jake we're dad by history and we'll see you all next time